The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Immunotherapy for the Win Against Melanoma, Strategies for Integrating Innovative and Next-Generation Immunotherapy Options. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GUW860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Tonight, uh, we're really honored that you'd take your evening on a Saturday night to come and hang out and hear a little bit about melanoma. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to educate you a little bit or at least reinforce some things that you already know. Um, so we're going to go through our slide deck here. And so I'd like to just uh, quickly say thank you also to the panelists here. They're going to introduce themselves a little bit later. But obviously, I'm Jason Luke. I'm going to be uh, chairing the session here today and giving some of the talks. And Kari Kendra from Ohio State is here, as well as Meredith McKeon from Sarah Cannon. So just a level set for the meeting here. Um, I think all of you in the room probably are aware of this as you're attending ASCO, but that the therapeutics uh, that are available for melanoma have changed dramatically over the past several years, obviously, where we have sustained overall survival improvement with immunotherapies as well as targeted therapies. And here we see an overlay of the various Kaplan-Meier survival plots from all the seminal clinical trials that really inform clinical practice right now. Uh, and you can see they're listed on the right-hand side. I won't go through all of them because I think you're probably well aware of most of them, but except to say that, you know, just a reminder that when I, when I started my career in 2012, the median survival of melanoma was nine months. And now the median survival for melanoma is not reached, meaning we don't know what it is. And so that's a really amazing changeover, and I think it emphasizes the progress, but actually has some complexity about how should we best manage patients, and we're going to talk through some of those things here tonight. So these challenges do remain. Um, you know, I talked about that aspirational survival. It's really predicated on long-term response to immune checkpoint blockade, and survival's poor in patients who actually progress on immune checkpoint blockade. So those patients who don't go into durable response still have those same outcomes, unfortunately, that were circa 2010. Um, we see an advance more recently with PD-1 and LAG-3 combination, uh, but you know, if you, that doesn't work, again, choosing an effective uh, therapy can be challenging. And treatment patterns in the National Cancer Database, noting there with uh, more than 8,000 patients with stage 3, shows that only about a quarter of patients more recently are receiving avogen immunotherapy after surgery. And that's interesting to see that. Um, there could be multiple reasons why, but we're going to talk through some of that data again, uh, how preventing relapse also could potentially enhance uh, long-term outcomes. Um, and some earlier stage patients, such as those with stage 2B and 2C disease, are in fact at very high risk of disease, uh, sorry, disease progression to metastasis, and may or may not actually be getting the most optimal therapies. And again, we're going to go over some of that today. So our goals here today are to improve our understanding of current evidence and guidelines surrounding the use of established and emerging immunotherapies for resectable and unresectable melanoma, to equip all of you with the skills you need to develop evidence-based treatment plans that include immunotherapy for a wide variety of patient presentations, and to provide you with guidance on how to manage unique adverse events associated with immunotherapy for patients with melanoma across the spectrum of disease. So the next wave of uh, immune options for advanced unresectable melanoma will be the first part of our talk today. Um, and we're going to sort of hand the meeting over then to our first speaker, who's Dr. Meredith McKeon, to talk about uh, PD-1 and LAG-3. And I'll just give her a chance to update, you know, to uh, uh, introduce herself as opposed to me butchering it, you know, from the beginning. So. <laughs> 
Sounds great. Thanks, Jason. Um, so thank you all for being here this evening. And I, I echo, uh, you know, hopefully this can be interactive. And um, please feel free to ask us some questions. Um, so I'm Meredith McCain. I'm a medical oncologist. I lead the Melanoma and Skin Cancer Research Program at Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville. So um, tonight we're going to be going over kind of new, new therapies available in metastatic melanoma. So PD-1 leg three combinations are now part of our standard of care frontline therapy. Um, so this is a copy of the NCCN frontline therapy recommendations. And you can see based on the data that we're going to discuss tonight that nivolumab and rilatlimab is now category one. And so this is, um, that means the strongest evidence um, to be considering this for your patients in the frontline setting for patients with metastatic disease. So how did we get here? So what is LAG3? So lymphocyte activation gene 3 regulates a checkpoint pathway. So it's another checkpoint um, inhibitor, uh, LAG3. Um, so LAG3 actually promotes an immunosuppressive environment. And so LAG3 and PD-1 receptors are overexpressed and are co-expressed on tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and melanoma. And so you can see here the rationale for uh, inhibiting LAG3 in potentially the iotherapy naive and iotherapy experienced setting. So you can see here that with antigen exposure, there's um, expression of PD-1 leg three, so inhibiting that um, in the iotherapy naive setting versus in the experienced setting, even after um, receiving a, a, something such as nivolumab, you can see that increased expression of leg three on the cells that could be a target for inhibition. So diving into the Relativity 047 uh, trial here, you can see this was a global, randomized, double-blind, phase two, three study. So study of kind of the highest rigor. Um, these patients were treated in the frontline setting, patients with a performance status of zero to one, and they were stratified by several different pathologic features, so leg three, PDL1, and BRAF status, in addition to their stage. Patients are randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive Nevorella versus Nevo, and the primary endpoint for this study was PFS with secondary endpoints for overall response rate and overall survival. So the initial data um, that was presented last year, um, or, or published last year at the New England Journal of Medicine, was uh, um, looking at 12-month um, follow-up for these patients. And you can see here that the combination of Nevorella doubled the PFS compared to Nevo single agent. So you can see here 10.12 um, months versus 4.63. Um, and um, showing that 12-month um, PFS of 47 versus 36%. And so based on this data, the Nevo-Rella combination was approved uh, for the treatment of adult and pediatric patients aged 12 or older with unresectable or frontline metastatic melanoma. Um, we now have updated results. Um, now, um, looking at 24 months, we have continued um, uh, sustained PFS here. You can see very similar to what was previously presented. And there's been additional um, presentation now of overall survival data, which you can see here that um, the median overall survival with Nevorella has not been reached versus it's 34 months with Nevo. So more to come there, um, but that's a secondary endpoint. So um, this study is primarily looking at PFS. Additionally, what was also presented was the confirmed overall response rate, which you can see at the bottom of the slide. Um, so the combination of Nevorella was uh, overall response rate was 43% versus 
And we'll probably come back to that later as we look across the treatment paradigm in that frontline setting and how to consider um, different treatments for our patients. So when we look at these, um, some of the factors um, for stratification, you know, the hypothesis would be that a patient that has more leg three expression may be more likely to benefit um, potentially, you know, this is what we looked at um, for the initial checkpoint inhibitors. Patients with more PD-1, pd one um, expression um, may have a higher likelihood of response. But really what they saw, and you can see here, is that there was really a, a a trend towards benefit regardless of lag three or PDL one expression. So patients um, with, you can see the lag three expression, patients that had greater than 1% did have a higher overall response rate at 47% uh, versus 31. Um, but that was um, still not seen to be, you know, that only patients were with increased expression were benefiting. Um, you can see here with the PDL1 expression, again, there was a higher response rate for patients with PDL1 expression. But then when they combined the two, um, you did see a little bit higher um, overall response rate, 54% um, versus lower rates um, when you had, you know, less leg three or less PDL1 expression. Um, when they looked at some other factors here, I think what's important just for the management of patients potentially is when you look at the overall response rate by age, that even in the older population, they had a similar um, overall response rate. We'll talk about toxicities and how this may be a regimen that's fairly well tolerated in this um, older patient population. And then um, importantly, they did include patients with acral and mucosal melanoma. Um, so we know particularly for mucosal melanoma, these patients tend to have lower response rate with immune um, checkpoint inhibitors. And so um, it was nice to see inclusion of these patients and to be able to see um, you know, about, about one in three patients there uh, were um, responding. Additionally, um, we saw no difference in response rate uh, based on BRAF mutation status. So then looking at adverse events, and so you can see here comparison of any grade versus the more severe grade three, four toxicities with the combination versus Nevo alone. And really what we see is that um, adding relatlimab, adding that leg three inhibition didn't um, significantly increase the adverse events that we saw in patients. We also didn't see any new signals, any new immune therapy events that we really wouldn't expect with single agent anti-PD-1 by itself. And what you see here is, you know, uh, the, the most common symptoms that we usually see um, in patients, hypothyroidism, rash, diarrhea. And you can see there are very few patients um, that actually um, discontinued treatment uh, with that addition of relatlimab compared to um, patients that had just received Nevo. There's been um, a look at patients that have um, previously progressed on anti-PD-1, and so there was relativity O20. Um, this was a trial part D, and so this looked at nevorella and advanced melanoma for patients with progression during or within three months of either one or more than one anti-PD-1-containing regimens. And in this patient population, this refractory patient population, we do see you know, what I'd consider a little disappointing um, response rate of 12% in that first cohort and 9.2% in the patients that had received multiple prior anti-PD-1 or PDL one containing regimens. Although we'll you know, continue to follow up, the median duration of response was not reached in that first cohort. So for the patients that did respond, um, you know, they may have durable responses. We'll follow with time. 
And you can see here the median PFS at the bottom was two and um, three months for those patient cohorts. So there are other um, LAG3 inhibitor um, combinations in development. Um, and one of these combinations is fianlimab and semiplimab. And so fianlimab um, blocks that same LAG3 MHC class two interaction and semiplimab blocks interactions of PD, um, PD-1 with PD-L1 and PD-L2. So this combination, the data at this point, um, is from a phase one study, um, but this, this study was looking at several different cohorts, and what's presented here were, um, it's a little confusing, but a couple expansion cohorts, they were six and 15, so these were um, patients that were anti-PD-1, PD-L1 naive, and then you can see their cohort seven, that was PD-1 or PD-L1 experienced. So these patients all received fianlimab plus semiplimab every three weeks um, for a year. And these patients um, were assessed kind of by standard um, study uh, criteria. And you can see primary endpoint was overall response rate. So when we look at this combination, now keep in mind this was a single arm phase one study, um, but in the patients that are, were anti-PD-1 naive, the overall response rate was 62 and 65%. Um, so that's very impressive, right? Um, more similar to what we see with Ipinevo, um, but I think difficult to compare across, uh, across studies. Uh, when you look at the combination of those two cohorts, so the full 80 patient um, number, you can see complete response rate was about 7%. Otherwise, most of those responses were partial responses. And the disease control rate, rate was 64%. Here's the waterfall plot um, for, for these patients. So you can see a number of these patients, these are deep responses, um, and a number of these patients receiving complete response. And the picture at the bottom um, is one of those patients that had really had a, a nice response there um, in their lung metastasis. So one of the analyses um, that was um, just presented at ASCO, so hot off the press, um, was looking at this combination, the fianlimab, semiplimab, in poor risk subgroups. So these are patients that have um, higher risk disease, so liver metastases, elevated LDH. And so you can see here that um, even in patients with liver metastases, um, the response rate was lower, um, but still 43%. Um, and so that's um, still a really promising um, early signal for this combination. When they looked at patients that had an LDH elevated above the upper limit of normal there, you can see they, they still had an overall response rate of 53%. Point that out there. Um, and then when they combined these factors, um, these patients, you know, the M1C, meaning visceral disease, and the elevated LDH, 35%. So I think certainly uh, more encouraging data here with this combination. Um, here's looking at the PFS with this combination, and PFS um, so far has been reported at 24 months. So that's um, really exciting, um, and I think more to come. Um, they also did an analysis looking at this combination stratified by leg three and PDL one expression, and we see, you know, similar to um, relatinib and nivolumab, that patients, regardless of PDL one and leg three expression, were benefiting. But we do see a trend um, in those patients um, with a response if they did have greater than one percent of that leg three expression, greater than one percent of that PDL one. 
Also, when we look at the toxicity profile, again, this is actually very, you know, even adding that leg three inhibition, um, the toxicity is still very similar to monotherapy. And so you can see here that their grade three, um, grade three or greater treatment-related AE rate was 20%, um, and rate of discontinuation was 15%. Um, so most patients that had these toxicities were still able to stay on treatment um, and manage those toxicities. One thing that was um, probably a little bit higher than um, expected was the uh, rate of adrenal insufficiency um, there. So treatment emergent adrenal insufficiency was 10%. So there is a phase three trial underway with this combination. So I think that's really gonna be the true test. Um, obviously, we, um, we're, we're familiar with seeing exciting phase one data, um, and that's certainly, I think, been compelling enough to launch a phase three. Um, but so I think more to come here with this combination. So you can see they're evaluating um, similar um, cohorts, so patients, um, age 12 or greater, unresectable or metastatic disease. Um, and they've got um, a couple different arms because they're looking at different dosing uh, um, in line with FDA's Project Optimus, um, in addition to um, looking at pembrolizumab or semiplumab uh, monotherapy. So I think some of the take-home points um, looking at the PD-1 leg three combinations um, is that certainly improved PFS compared with anti-PD-1. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have any head-to-head -head data with Ipinevo. You know, that's not available. We may get some of that um, from real-world data. Um, at this point, there's no data for CNS metastases, and we don't have a biomarker for selection. So in that frontline setting, um, we don't have something we can point to in the PATH report that helps us make that decision. Um, the toxicity that we've seen is very manageable and much more comparable to anti-PD-1 than the combination with Ipinevo. Um, we do see a lower response rates and a shorter PFS when it's given in the refractory setting. So I think the anticipation is this may not be, um, you know, reversing that IO refractory patient, um, but it's certainly a, a good option in the, in the frontline setting. And we are seeing more combinations. So the fianlimab, semiplimab um, is certainly a combination to keep your eye on. So just a reminder, you know, the immune-related AEs that the common management that we're used to for immune checkpoint inhibitors is, sim is kind of the same algorithms, that same process that you should be um, using with this new combination as you're familiar with, with single agent PD-1 or combination um, with anti-CTLA-4. Um, and so this is um, taken from the standard um, guidelines, and I, th I think they're really pretty similar across um, the different organizations between ASCO, NCCN, CITSI, and, and ESMO. So moving on to a case. So um, this is a case of a patient in my clinic. Um, so David, a 66-year-old man, um, he initially presented, uh, I, I think he was actually being evaluated for um, heart, uh, heart evaluation, I think uh, some type of cardiac procedure. They did imaging and had seen a lesion in the chest and had a PET CT that showed a number of subcutaneous lesion, uh, lesions in addition to these spots in the chest. Um, he had imaging with brain MRI that was negative, had a biopsy, one of the subcutaneous lesions that was positive for metastatic melanoma. Um, he was a PS1, um, so he was a B, obese, had hypertension, um, and the and molecular profiling came back as BRAF wild type. So I think some, some questions for my colleagues here, 
you know, is PD-1 like 3 preferred or, you know, looking at the other agents for, for IO, would, would, is this a patient that, you know, would maybe push you more towards PD-1 monotherapy um, versus combination? So, Dr. Kendra, do you have some initial thoughts there if this patient kind of walked mm -hmm. in your clinic doors? Mm -hmm. So the big difference um, between single agent and combination, in my mind, is, is, is the potential added benefit worth the potential added toxicity. Um, in someone who is asymptomatic, presenting with other medical problems, um, he had a cardiac something happen recently, looking towards something that's potentially a little less toxic, um, may be better for this particular individual using more of a, a, a monotherapy type of approach. Yep, so I think that's not, you know, the, each patient engaged different, you know, uh, individually. Um, you know, we don't see this patient in front of us, right? So it's a little bit, you know, hard to engage in that, you know, kind of thing. I'd say in my practice, I, I have a pretty limited use of anti-PD-1 monotherapy anymore and rather really discriminate into patients either get PD-1 lag-3 with, you know, Nevo plus Rella or for patients who have high-risk features where I would have previously given them Ipinevo, I still defer to that. Um, so, you know, again, without other details, I, I think this sounds like a patient that I'd probably consider for the nivolumab and relatlimab combination. Um, but, you know, again, like, you know, we don't see the patients, so it's a little bit hard to make those decisions. And you mentioned, is there anything that would push you towards the CTLA-4, you know, that, that patient that walks in the door? Yeah, sure. So, you know, historically, we've thought of IPI kind of given that power punch behind PD-1, right? And which patients needed that at risk of getting the side effects of ipilimumab. And the, as we had thought about it, it was really patients who had features like brain metastases for sure, but even bone and liver metastases, elevated lactate dehydrogenase, and someone who's presenting with really rapidly progressive disease where, you know, you're going to get one chance. So you got to give them, you got to give them the house, otherwise you're not going to get a chance, right? And so that, that's where I really think about it. And this, this sounds more like a patient, though, with low volume disease without those features. And so I'd probably defer, you know, again, monotherapy is reasonable. I, I'd probably personally, you know, go for the higher upside of efficacy response, but that's how I would think about it. Um, and Dr. Kendra, what's been your experience so far with, you know, toxicity with the combination therapy with relalimab? Mm, far less than with the, the Ipi and Nevo. <laughs> far less, but we still do see adrenal insufficiency. Uh, we do, do see the hypothyroid state. Uh, we still do see some of that diarrhea, um, but far, far less common than we do with Ipinevo. Mm -hmm. Dr. Yeah. Luke? Yeah, no, similar. You know, I think, um, I have to say, in our, in our practice, um, we read the toxicity more from the numbers in the relativity 047 study because we haven't seen anything more than what we saw with PD-1 monotherapy. Um, but it's, you know, it's the sample size that you have for your individual practice is always not really representative, right? So, uh, but that's been, we, we've done quite well in terms of toxicity. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is always interesting as, as you know, these newer agents kind of get out into practice to, to be able to see, but, um, and I think you point out, yeah, each of us, I think, individually has a limited, um, limited perspective, um, but I think very, um, very appealing so far from an um, AE standpoint. Um, great, and then, um, Dr. Luke, will merging PD-1-like three combinations have a role um, in, in this setting as well? Yeah, so it was mentioned the uh, semiplumab plus finanlimab data, they look quite good in isolation. Um, it's important to note that this cross-trial comparison thing here, I think, is very fraught. So I, I would not try to cross-compare response rates, except to say that it looks really good. 
And so if and when there's you know, randomized data that really support that combination, I think it will be very competitive for a similar patient population. Mm -hmm. All right, and so um, this patient did receive combination. You can see his, his baseline scan on the left and um, his follow-up scan um, after I think Couple. This is probably three restaging scans. I'm just showing a complete response. Um, this patient actually hasn't had any immune-related AEs um, at this point. That was an amazing overview of kind of the current state of checkpoint blockade. I think um, really emphasizes progress. Um, I'm going to move on for the next talk to kind of talk about um, what, what do we do when patients fail standard checkpoint blockade in the frontline setting? What's going on in that space, and you know how do we think about that? What's exciting? To quickly introduce myself, um, I'm, you know, I said Jason Luke, I'm at UPMC Hillman Cancer Center in the University of Pittsburgh. I am the Associate Director for Clinical Research for the Cancer Center in general, and I run our early phase immunotherapy and drug development program, the phase one program, but obviously do a lot of continuous oncology as well. So to start, um, you know, outcomes after progression on immune checkpoint clock therapy really are not good, uh, and we really need better options for these patients. Um, and on the left, you see a Kaplan-Meier survival plot, you know, emphasizing this point. It's, you know, it's a retrospective analysis, but really shows that survival is less than a year in patients who have progressed. And so sometimes there's a sense that, you know, oh, it's melanoma, we fixed that problem. But no, we didn't. You know, maybe for upwards of half, we got a pretty good option, but we don't for the other patients, and they do very poorly. Uh, and it's important to emphasize that, you know, we don't really understand yet what the interaction is between our two frontline combo regimens that I just mentioned. So we have our PD-1 lag-3, and we've had PD-1 CTLA-4, but what about sequencing them? There's going to be more data coming on this very soon, but the only data we have in the public domain right now looks at patients who got CTLA-4 monotherapy, IPI, or IPI-NEVO after LAG-3, and the outcomes actually were actually rather dismal. Again, they were very consistent with the previous analysis of less than a year of survival and response rates on the order of 10%. Now, I'm aware that more data will be coming from Relativity 047 to look at this more robustly, but you know, it suggests that we're probably not in a situation of being able to salvage a lot of patients with a second immune checkpoint blockade regimen after they've progressed on combination up front. So when choosing a, a, a therapy in the treatment uh, progression setting, um, you know, we have several options, but none of them really are overly satisfying, right? So you can see on the left, this is NCCN. You know, a lot of different sort of um, category two recommendations of things that you can try. I love this one down here, high dose interleukin two. I don't know when the last time anybody did that was, but, um, but you know, and it, it should be emphasized that there are, you know, in addition to BRAF, obviously, a number of other more rare genomic changes that you really should assay your patients for, because if you find them, you can really make a meaningful difference for these patients, again, noting their limited options. But there have been a couple of data sets that have come forward more recently that have helped to, you know, define a new treatment option. So one of them in melanoma is lenvatinib plus fembrolizumab. Um, lenvatinib is a complicated drug that uh, putatively blocks uh, VEGFR2 signaling, but additionally FGFRs, but frankly a lot of other things as well. Um, and this is a schematic showing that uh, and the impact of what lenvatinib can do in various different settings. Lenvatinib obviously having an impact on VEGF, and that can actually lead to polarization changes in tumor-associated macrophages, as well as uh, uh, induction of interferon signaling, which can amplify T-cell responses. And so through both of these mechanisms, there's a rationale for why a small molecule TKI could enhance anti-PD-1. And on the right, you see a mouse modeling, a CT26 model, and just to cut to it, the combination obviously looks better than the other two. So based on this logic, you, you're well aware that lenvatinib and pembrolizumab is a standard of care in multiple different tumors, in kidney cancer, in hepatocellular carcinoma, et cetera. And in melanoma, we have data that support this now as well. 
And these data come from the trial, which was the LEAP004 study, which was a single-arm, non-randomized clinical trial that looked at patients with a very stringent definition of what constituted progression on a PD-1 and CTLA-4 antibody. They very much wanted to make sure they were no late responders on this clinical trial that would, you might call, contaminate the potential uh, outcome limits. Uh, outcome uh, analysis. And patients got pembrolizumab here at 200 milligrams normal dosing and lenvatinib notably at 20 milligrams PO daily. And if for anybody who gives lenvatinib, the exact dose of lenvatinib matters a lot um, because different patients can only tolerate so much lenvatinib. Uh, and these are the data which I think suggest that this is an active regimen. Overall response rate at 21.4%, um, but 30%, 33% in patients who had progressed on both PD-1 and CTLA-4. And these data were presented at ASCO a couple of years ago with this uh, waterfall plot to emphasize this. And this was a therapy that was active both in BRAF mutant and non-BRAF mutant disease. And in fact, this is now listed in the NCCN guidelines as a category two option for patients who have progressed. And many people now do use this as a default salvage approach, especially in patients who might have brain metastases after progression on anti-PD-1 combination regimens. And these were the overall uh, survival and progression-free survival plots that are associated with this treatment. Um, I'll note that for a immunotherapy backbone um, approach, these data are, you know, not quite what we would really want. You know, we're, we're always looking for that tail on the curve idea that some patients are going to really long-term durable response. We don't so much see that with this regimen, but again, in the absence of anything else, this can still be a valuable treatment that can be given for patients. Now, this study uh, concept was taken actually into the frontline metastatic setting in what was called the LEAP003 study, uh, combining lenvatinib and pembrolizumab and randomizing that against pembrolizumab monotherapy. I won't go into all the details because trial is being discontinued, because this trial actually read out recently was a negative phase three clinical trial in the frontline setting. So this combination will not be an option for patients in the de novo metastatic setting. But again, those previous data I mentioned before emphasize that is an active regimen in the salvage setting that can have op uh, utility, especially in those patients that might have brain metastases where options are really limited. So to move forward then beyond that TKI combination, we have a lot of enthusiasm in melanoma around adoptive cellular transfer. And in melanoma, it's probably the first place that this is going to become a big deal outside of hematologic malignancies. And so especially in the context of autologous tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy, which has been advanced to the uh, form of a, a clinical therapeutic in the terms of a drug called lifelucil. Um, and this is, uh, you know, slightly complicated to do, a little different than what you're used to, but not really that crazy to think about, uh, where, you know, patients are identified and tumor tissue has to be procured. So a patient has to have a tumor resected. They have to go to the OR and have a tumor removed. Uh, that is then processed through a workflow uh, through the company uh, called Iovance, uh, which took this out of the NCI and, and optimized this process, where through 22 days uh, on a medium process, they can harvest the cells and then grow them up in cytokine support so they're ready as an autologous drug that's specific to an individual patient. So then the patient comes in and you give non-myeloblative lymphodepletion and then reinfuse their own tumor infiltrating lymphocytes now into that niche that's been opened within the bone marrow uh, and in the immune system uh, for the presence of these cells. After infusion, patients are given as many doses as they can tolerate, up to six of high-dose interleukin-2, and then we assess for a response over time. Uh, and these data look quite promising um, through a series of uh, cohort expansions in an original phase one clinical trial. Patients with, uh, you know, treatment refractory melanoma uh, received uh, lifelucil in a couple of different cohorts, and they're noted here two and four are the names of the cohorts. 
And what you can see is that in roughly similar size um, uh, cohorts, you saw initially a response rate on the order of 34.8%, and then in cohort two, the validation cohort at 28.7%, you know, so averaging it out 31.4%. You know, and I think that's pretty meaningful, again, in a patient population for which there is really kind of no standard of care. Uh, and it's important to note some of these patients are in very long-term durable response after adopted cell transfer. Uh, and I think these data are very exciting. It's probably the first indication where TIL therapy will become a standard of care because this um, uh, approach is now under rapid review by the FDA, and we're hopeful, actually, that it may become a standard of care before the end of 2023. Now, another approach that's uh, been longstanding to melanoma of interest is intratumoral therapy, um, and, you know, whether it's vaccine or another different sort of approach. Um, and so the concept here is because in advanced melanoma, sometimes with cutaneous metastases, we can reach the disease. Can we do something, obviously, that would ablate the cancer, but might also be immunostimulatory that could enhance systemic immune responses more generally? Um, and so the concept of oncolytic viruses have been very much at play in this sort of arena for a long time, where, again, the concept is you load the syringe with oncolytic virus, you inject it, and it preferentially only infects the tumor cells where it can replicate and then both kill the cancer cells, but also generate a number of immunological signals that might help to amplify the activity of systemic immunotherapy. Uh, and a number of modifications have been made to these viruses. Uh, the most advanced of these viruses is obviously telamagene laherpirepvec, or TVEC, where unfortunately a combination with study with pembrolizumab was negative. But more recently, a virus called the RP1 virus, which is also a herpes simplex virus type 1, uh, carries a number of different modifications of the virus to make it more uh, aggressive against the cancer cells, uh, and hopefully then to drive a greater effect in combination with anti-PD-1. Uh, these are data that were presented actually, I think, at ASCO last year, and there's an update in an abstract this year I'll talk about in a second. But suffice it to say that in the initial evaluation of a small number of patients, they described a response rate overall in the order of about 40% systemic resist response rate. So not just where they injected the, the virus, but rather in the whole body they were seeing these effects. And I can tell you quite frankly, many of us were like, well, we've tried this a long time and it's never really worked. I'm not so sure about this. At ASCO here, just today, they presented a poster of 90 patients now. The exact same number holds up. 40% systemic response rate in patients that have already failed anti one And I think these data are, are quite exciting. Um, it's a little bit of a niche population. Not every patient has cutaneous-centric disease uh, metastasis, but for those that do, this is looking like a very promising therapy. And what we understand is that they're going to complete accrual and be able to go to the FDA with their total data set, possibly by the end of this year, maybe early next year. So it could be the case we have a second oncolytic virus approved for standard of care therapy as early as, early as next year. And um, these are representative images of what you might call abscopal-like effects. So we inject this lesion, but you see these other ones are shrinking over time. And obviously, these are liver metastases, not just cutaneous metastases you know, that we're trying to manage. Finally, uh, there are two programs that I think you should be on your radar as very important, and I think actually probably will be field-defining within the next five years. And they both surround the targeting of uh, PRAME, which is a cancer testis antigen, which is disproportionately induced in melanoma cells. So for people that aren't like hanging out, thinking about cancer testis antigens all the time, uh, there are certain molecules in our body that are only expressed in the fetal state. 
And as we come out of that you know, primordial ball of cells, some proteins get downregulated. They're not supposed to be there. But cancer gets like super screwed up, especially melanoma, and turns some of these proteins back on. It's very useful because that actually marks self and non-self. Because a therapeutic strategy engaging PRAME in this case will not engage in other natural tissues in the body. Okay? And so that's very interesting because you could start to design immunological strategies that would only attack the PRAME um, and that one of them is outlined here. So what you see here is a drug, and it's great, got a great name, IMCF106C. Just keep trying to say that over and over again. Someday it'll probably have a name. But this is a uh, cousin, sister, brother, whatever we're going to call it, of the drug Tabentafusp, which many of you are now aware is approved as the first therapeutic option for advanced uveal melanoma. Because the backbone is this MTAC platform where there's a conjugation between a tumor-targeting antigen and CD3. And I explain this to my patients as basically like immunological tape. On one side of the molecule, you grab the tumor cell. On the other side, you grab the immune cells and you just pull them together. And it turns out those immune cells, they don't like the tumor cell when they see them. Uh, this is an example of the, of the construct that we're talking about here. So it's a targeting domain, which is the T cell receptor that engages with um, targeting of uh, PRAME, as well as an effector domain, single chain variable fragment anti-CD3. And again, just physically pulling cells in. Now, important point is that because this is a T-cell receptor-based therapy, the therapy is restricted by HLA expression. And this is something that I think the general oncology community is going to need to get their minds around. People have heard of HLA testing in the context of bone marrow transplants, right? You have to match the incoming product versus the old one. But now our therapies are going to be designed to work in certain people's immune systems. And so testing for HLA A201 is now a standard of care in uveal melanoma because the only approved therapeutic requires this, this is more and more going to become relevant in other tumor types as well. So in cutaneous melanoma is mostly a disease of Caucasians, obviously, and the expression of A A201 is approximately 48% of all Caucasians, so about half of people will carry this natural genotype. And these are the phase one data that were presented at ESMO last year for IMCF106C. Uh, and what you can see is that there were a number of patients, actually both with uveal melanoma as well as cutaneous, that had partial responses per resist that look quite interesting. Uh, and these are all in patients who were refractory to immune checkpoint blockade, again, in, sort of suggesting that this could be a, a high-priority treatment with further development. And there are a big clinical trial series ongoing now, something to think about if you have refractory patients that are looking for new treatment options. Uh, this is an example of a patient who got this kind of treatment, and you can see, um, you know, these lesions that, you know, are shrinking over time. It's kind of our classic thing in oncology to be, feel happy about ourselves that this tumor got a lot smaller after getting treatment. Um, now, there's another approach to targeting PRAME, which I also think people need to start uh, being aware of. And as opposed to a CD3-directed tumor engagement, this is instead actually a transduction of a new T-cell receptor into an autologous, T uh, autologous um, product from the patient to re-educate their own immune cells to go after the uh, cancer in a natural way. So it's a T-cell receptor-based engineering platform is another way to target PRAME. Uh, and the concept here from a, this a product called IMA203 uh, is that patients are identified as HLA-A201 because, again, you have to have the right genotype in order to have the T-cell receptor actually engage via the MHC complex. They are then profiled for the presence or absence of PRAME, and it turns out that in melanoma, PRAME expression is almost universal. Almost all patients have this. It seems to be a canonical aspect of the development of melanoma. In fact, we use it as a diagnostic criteria sometimes on primary lesions. 
Uh, and once this is done, we can leukapherese the patient. So whereas, remember, I mentioned till therapy, we cut the tumor out. Here, we can take peripheral blood. And so this ends up being a lot more similar to what we do in multiple myeloma when we want to prep patients for autologous, for uh, autotransplant. You send the patient, they can get the blood out, and then they can take the blood and then perform a lenoviral transduction to insert the T-cell receptor into the, the, the uh, blood product, bring the patient back and give a low-intensity uh, lymphodepletion strategy, and then reinfuse those T-cells back into the patient, which have now been re-educated to go after the prime molecule. And this is an early uh, data series in phase one, but what you can see here, this Kaplan-Meier plot, I think is pretty impressive. So in the first uh, 11 patients who were treated in the uh, recommended phase two dose, there are seven responders, most of which are more than 50% tumor shrinkage. And so this looks like a very powerful technology to leverage, albeit this is a little more complicated than just giving the anti-PD-1 immunotherapy, right? You gotta find the right patient by HLA, you gotta do a leukapheresis, you gotta prep the patient, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I feel pretty confident that five years from now, this is the kind of therapy we're gonna be doing, not just in melanoma, but in many other tumor types as well. So summary quickly, uh, we talked about the landscape of melanoma therapeutics continues to move very quickly. That's really awesome for our patients. And I think from just a technology platform, it's pretty cool. We talked about autologous transfer of tills. We talked about viruses. We talked about bispecifics, TCRT cells, et cetera. But all the same, we have a lot of patients that still pass away from melanoma, and that's not good enough, right? We think that tills are probably going to become a standard of care option in 2023, possibly early 2024. But there are many agents in uh, clinical development that look very exciting kind of moving into the future. So we'll talk about a case quickly uh, about exploring options for progression after sort of standard immunotherapy. And so here, uh, my patient, Mark, um, is a 73-year-old man uh, who has metastatic unresectable melanoma. We gave him upfront PD-1 CTLA-4. Um, he actually still has normal LDH, but he's kind of, you know, like, you know, not that strongest guy, right? He's a, he's a, a PS 1.9 kind of guy, like as we sometimes sort of talk about, right? BRAF wild type. So what are we going to do with this guy, right? I just outlined a whole bunch of different options here, and certainly any of them possibly could be an option, right? But I guess I'd, I'd kick it over to the team. You know, we work at academic medical centers or large private, you know, practices that have a lot of options for patients. You know, how do you think about this kind of a patient? Maybe, you know, Meredith, how do you want to start with that? Yeah, sure. You know, we talk all the time about trying to personalize therapies for patients. And I think a lot of the therapies that you um, mentioned, I think what personalized means can not only mean based on the molecular profile of the patient, you know, being able to understand is this patient HLA AO2 positive, but then also even, you know, the PRAIM, that's, that's weekly treatment. So can this patient come in weekly for treatment? Um, the intratumoral, is this, uh, where, what does the landscape of their disease look like? Do they have a, a lesion that could be easily accessed for doing intratumoral injections cutaneously or visceral? Um, so I think, you know, as we're getting kind of more novel approaches outside of just the immune checkpoint inhibitors and oral therapy with targeted therapies, I think we'll really be able to kind of narrow in on, you know, for this patient, what are some of those other factors that might help us decide what's the best, both from a pathologic standpoint, and then also from a personal standpoint, like transport to the clinics, and yeah, family support. Absolutely. And, and more comments you want to have about that? I mean, I think we live in the Midwest, and sometimes the distances are pretty big for patients, and <laughs> we might have these great ideas, but it doesn't always work that way, right? Yeah, the weekly treatments are a challenge for many, <clears throat> but for some, they're well worth it, you know, especially if there's a therapeutic that has a good potential response for them. You know, when it comes to the, the HLA pen profiling, um, it is a small number of people that is going to have that profile. Um, but well worth being aware and looking for it. So uh, yes, I think more of a personalized approach for that individual patient would be worthwhile. Yeah. 
And I'll note that um, many of the um, routine next generation sequencing platforms are starting to have some of this information on them. And I'm not sure everybody's totally aware of that. You know, it used to be that when you got your NGS report, you got whatever, 50 genes, and then it was 200 genes, now it's 400 genes. But it started to slip in there that the PDL1 was also there. And actually, many of the vendors actually already provide the HLA profiling as well. So this isn't like some pie in the sky thing you're going to have to go chasing around. It's actually probably already present in a lot of the data that you're getting back. It's just that you might not be looking immediately for it, but now you might be aware to be able to sort of take a double look. The other piece that we didn't bring up with the last slide was with the TIL therapy. It's very intense, very short, and then they're done, and then they're free of us, yep. which is very attractive to some people as well. Yep, yep. I think that's a good point. Well, so we're going to keep going, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about meeting treatment challenges with immunotherapy and resectable melanoma, and I'm going to keep the stage here to kind of just keep spieling along. I remain Jason Luke in case you had not noticed, uh, with similar credentials to what I had said previously. And I'm going to talk about advances in adjuvant immunotherapy and new directions in thinking about stage 3 and stage 2 melanoma, an area that I've done a lot of work in that I feel kind of passionately we need to get the message out a little bit more. So here we outline in you know, a little bit, a lot of detail, but guidelines and evidence to support adjuvant immunotherapy in stage three, you know, building on NCCN guidelines across the therapies that are approved. So anti-PD-1 with nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and then BRAF and MEK inhibitors with BRAF-MEK, dibrf and trametinib, et cetera, all obviously category one therapies uh, across the board and with roughly similar magnitudes of benefit, you know, roughly approximately a 40 to 50% reduction in recurrence-free survival. Uh, and notably, even in comparison with other checkpoints, the Checkmate 238 study randomized patients to get nivolumab or ipilimumab and clearly showed a superiority of nivolumab versus ipilimumab with you know, a 28% improvement even versus another checkpoint. Uh, and in a more pure sort of comparison, the, the Keynote 54 study looked at Pembro versus placebo and saw this was even a little bit more about 0.6. So again, like I said, about 40% improvement with immunotherapy in the stage three setting. Um, so anti-PD-1 is clearly standard of care. I think probably everybody here already kind of knows that. One of the weird complexities, though, is whereas we've made a lot of success in metastatic disease with combination therapies, that's yet to be realized in the adjuvant setting. And we have a couple of studies that are at odds with each other in this realm. Um, so the Checkmate 915 clinical trial was an enormous trial, ridiculously large trial, 1,800 patients to look at Nevo plus IPI in the adjuvant stage 3 setting. And there were so many problems with this trial. Uh, it started out as a 1,000-patient trial. Then it got modified to add a whole bunch of patients to look at something different. The dose of ipilimumab was completely wrong in this trial. They, they studied a completely new regimen of ipilimumab that had never been given to anyone with melanoma before. And as you can see, hopefully all the brainiacs in the room can notice that there is no difference, right? So this trial was totally negative. It was a complete disaster. I have a lot of friends at BMS who worked on this trial who feel very bad about it. Um, but it is what it is that this level of evidence obviously did not rise to the point of FDA approval, which on some level might be good because I think a lot of us were reticent of the toxicity that we would think about giving in the adjuvant study for ipinevo. We give that to patients for metastatic disease because we think we don't have a choice. We're not really that enthusiastic about doing that for patients who were, might be cured anyway. All the same, this never got approved. But the weird thing was at about the same time, there was a clinical trial being run in Germany, and they called it the Immuned trial, and this was patients with resected stage 4 melanoma, so metastatic disease but resected, who went on to get either nevo-mono, placebo, or ipinevo, and you can see there is this huge benefit in this population of patients. 
So how can it be the case there's an enormous benefit in patients with a resected stage four versus there's no benefit in the rest of stage three? It doesn't make sense. And I think it probably has to do something with the dose of ipilimumab used in these trials. In the Immuned study, they used kind of the regular dose of ipi, ipi-3, nevo-1. And here they used uh, nevo plus ipi-1 uh, every six weeks. So it was a much, lever, le much lower area under the curve exposure in this trial. All the same, it's a huge headache, a big mess. It's not standard of care to use ipinevo in the adjuvant setting, but for some patients with brain metastases, I'd be interested in what people think, but I do use it sometimes in patients who presented with the novo brain metastases because I worry so much that when they recur, they'll have edema in the brain. We won't be able to give them anything. It'll be a total nightmare. But this is an area of confusion that remains in the field. But what about the role of LAG3? And so this was already discussed. I won't, you know, belabor this right now, but we saw a benefit in the metastatic setting in Relativity 047 that was actually on magnitude, on absolute numbers, bigger for relatinumab than it was for IPI. So nevo-rela on an absolute basis has a bigger delta for PFS and OS than IPI-nevo. And a much more attractive safety profile when we think about possibly applying this in the metastatic setting. So given that context, where else are we going to go? Well, you know, we have a metastatic trial. It's how oncology works, right? We have a metastatic trial. It worked, so we better try it in adjuvant. So, of course, we're doing that now. There's a trial, Relativity 098, and I believe this is a fully accrued phase three clinical trial in the adjuvant setting. Uh, very similar to all the other adjuvant trials you've ever heard of, stage three melanoma. Patients get nevo-rela, same dose as metastatic, or they get nevo, and then we follow up. So it'll be super, super interesting to see what the outcome of this trial is. Because based on the Checkmate 915 study, combo didn't beat at, uh, mono in adjuvant. But there were so many problems with the previous study that we're not sure that's really true. And I think this would be a boon for patients because if you're willing to tolerate the tox of Nevo, relatinumab adds some, it's, it doesn't add any, but it clearly adds a fair amount in terms of efficacy. So this could be a, a pretty big deal once it eventually reads out. Of course, we've had a lot of other movement in the field of adjuvant therapy and melanoma, and probably the big thing, well, definitely the big thing for us as melanoma docs here at ASCO is the update from the clinical trial of mRNA4157 or V940, which we're calling now an individualized neoantigen therapy. It's not a vaccine anymore. Um, so it's, neo, it's individualized neoantigen therapy. So what is this? Well, this whole field of neoantigens has been emerging in oncology for a long time. And we're aware that they can be immunogenic, right, in a personalized way. It's not the PRAME that I talked about before. It's not GP100. It's individual single nucleotide polymorphisms that show up after exposure to carcinogen that actually drive these immune responses. I won't go over the figure, but except to say that with modern technology, bioinformatic computational power, we can actually now take a tumor, sequence it, and compare it to the normal in the patient. So take their peripheral blood mononuclear cells, get genomic DNA, compare that with the genomics in the tumor and say, okay, what's different? And then bioinformatically compare which of the proposed changes will turn into proteins that bind to either class one or class two and would be expressed on the surface of the cell and therefore could be observed by antigen presentation. And doing this, uh, the, uh, the company generated these vaccines which can then be delivered to patients. Uh, in a clinical trial, I talked about it already, we'll call it Keynote uh, 942 for uh, simplicity's sake, patients with very high-risk melanoma. So it, they allowed stage 3B, but no patients actually had 3B. It was all 3C or 3D, bulky disease that presented with resectability, went on to be randomized to either get Pembro plus the, uh, personalized, uh, the individualized neoantigen therapy for up to a year versus Pembro alone as per standard of care. And importantly, the... Um, 
the individualized neoantigen therapy was made and usually applied at approximately the third dose of the Pembro, and they're continued throughout the rest of the year. And these were the data that were presented at uh, AACR earlier this year, looking at recurrence-free survival. And what you can see is that it actually took a little while for the vaccine to kick in, such that the vaccine started being given kind of like right around, maybe around here, but you start to see the separation of the curves here actually at about a year, which becomes much more profound as you go further out. Again, to emphasize here, in the previous trials, we were comparing Pembro to placebo. This is Pembro to Pembro plus the vaccine, right? So this is still the benefit of anti-PD-1 plus this delta. And look at this hazard ratio, 0.56. They almost doubled the impact on recurrence-free survival by including, did I say vaccine? Uh, by including the uh, individualized neoantigen therapy. So these data are really, really provocative. And of course, they're phase two data. This is not the biggest trial in the world, right? This is almost 200 patient trial. It'll, it's really, really exciting to think about what these data will look like when we actually do a randomized study in a, a registrational sort of perspective. I'm gonna move on quickly then to also talk about stage two melanoma, something that I've been working on a lot over the last few years. We talked about stage three, and I think it was just taken on faith. Stage three, that sounds bad, right? Stage three means there's lymph nodes involved by AJCC. Patients must be at high risk. Therefore, we must give them adjuvant therapy. Except a weird idiosyncrasy of the AJCC and melanoma is that some of the patients with stage two have a worse melanoma-specific survival than the patients with stage three. And this has been known for a long time, but never really dwelt upon because Melanoma oncology was C-derm, C-surgery, then C-medoc, right? But if you look at these curves, you'll actually see that patients with stage 2C melanoma have worse outcomes than patients with 3A and 3B, which emphasizes the point that the risk of metastasis and death in melanoma comes from the primary melanoma on the skin, not from the lymph nodes. And yet, despite this being data that's been around like forever, I mean, we've had the AJCC, I mean, I'm... Again, like, I got not that old, but like 20 years, 30 years. I don't know how long is old the HACC. Everyone's known this forever, but when we ran the trials, we only did stage three. We left out the stage two patients, but they're at higher risk than some of the stage three patients. Why did we do that? Well, that was the inertia. That was the regulatory landscape. It was what it was. So based on that, we busted our tails, me personally, for about five years to eventually get this clinical trial launched called Keynote 716. Keynote 716 was a very simple study. It said patients with stage 2B and 2C melanoma have a very high risk of recurrence, and I bet if we give Pembro, it will reduce the risk, because it turns out Pembro works really good for melanoma. So we randomized patients to get Pembro or placebo, and then we followed them up. Uh, and what was a, ver a validating thing for me, but super obvious and should have been so to the field, at the first protocol specified analysis in the clinical trial, 12 months of follow-up, the trial hit its primary endpoint which emphasized two things. One, patients are at very high risk of recurrence. Two, Pembro works for melanoma. But again, if we had pulled you coming in, you probably would have known that, right? So this is not a surprising outcome and yet really challenged the field. It has actually really turned things upside down in terms of referral patterns because it's no longer appropriate that a patient sees a derm and goes to surgery. They should see a derm and go to a multidisciplinary team that includes a medical oncologist to think about when is the appropriate th time to think about adjuvant therapy. 
Uh, and in fact, um, these data have been updated a couple of times. I presented the 12-month. Uh, Dr. Georgina Long at ASCO last year presented the 24-month update. And I'll be updating this trial on the oral session at ASCO on Monday when many of you have already left probably to go home. Um, but if you're still around, please come in and hear the update. Uh, we'll be updating both recurrence-free survival, but more importantly, distant metastasis-free survival, which shows an improving and enhancing benefit over time, consistent with what we know anti-PD-1 does in every other setting in medical oncology for melanoma. Uh, this was a subgroup analysis uh, across Keynote 716, uh, and essentially shows that basically patients with all different factors benefited from anti-PD-1. Uh, one that was really interesting, uh, actually, was this one at the bottom. Uh, I don't want to dwell on it per se, but I think this is the one that has stood out to people. The presence or absence of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in the melanoma, the primary lesion, did seem to stratify the outcomes pretty strongly. And that's actually consistent with what we already know about anti-PD-1 efficacy in other situations, right? Where you have high PDL one it's a surrogate for infiltrating immune cells that are making interferon gamma. And we see something similar in this adjuvant setting. So one of the complaints about this is that, of course, if you go from stage three to stage two, the number of patients at risk goes way up because the number of people who have deep primaries but not nodes is much larger. In fact, it doubles the size of the number of patients. So could we better select who gets adjuvant therapy? And the answer right now is we actually can't. These are hints about ways we might be able to do it in the future as we start to apply modern diagnostics as well as our clinical pathological factors. Now, um, an immediate response to Keynote 716 after I had tried to convince the company that does Checkmate things to do this also. They uh, then launched a companion trial called Checkmate 76K, which is basically the same trial, um, albeit with one slight difference. Uh, they included a two-to-one randomization so that patients were more likely two-thirds th would get nivolumab and one-third would get placebo. Otherwise, it trials the same corner of RFS endpoint. And they showed a very uh, similar uh, outcome. Um, it was a big benefit in terms of 12-month um, um, recurrence-free survival. They hit the primary endpoint here. Uh, the hazard ratio here looks quite impressive, um, albeit with a little bit of weird idiosyncrasy about the control arm. Um, in functionally speaking, you know, Pembro and Nevo basically work the same in whatever situation you use them. So I wouldn't try to overthink this except to say it's, it's pretty clear that nivolumab works just as well as Pembro, just like you would expect it would be, albeit that in this moment, uh, Anti-PD-1 with nivolumab is not approved by the FDA for use in stage two, whereas pembrolizumab is. You know, I would assume that will probably change over the relatively near term. But and there, you know, now data that phenocopy this and I think support the idea that this is a biologic phenomenon relative in stage two. This was also consistent with DMFS, as I kind of alluded to. Again, no surprise. Pembro, RFS, and DMFS, Nevo, RFS, and DMFS, both consistent and helpful uh, for patients with stage two disease. So uh, next steps to think about. Uh, adjuvant Nevo uh, and Pembro in high risk. Uh, these are being investigated now with different biomarker stratifications. So there's a study in Europe called the Nevo-Mela study where they're trying to use ctDNA to select out which patients would be at high risk to actually give this therapy. The caveat here is that in melanoma, as opposed to other tumor types, detecting ctDNA is much more difficult. That probably seems kind of, you know, kind of obvious if the tumor's only this big, you don't have as much CDNA as if you take out the guy's whole bladder, right? Um, but all the same, it's a, it's a biologically informed approach that I think makes sense. Uh, there are other adjuvant clinical trials that are ongoing you should be cognizant of. Um, one of them that's already launched is called the KeyVibe 10 trial. This trial combines pembrolizumab with the anti-tigit antibody called MK7684A or vibostolumab as above here. This study has been designed to capture the entire approval. Uh, my that they should just treat everybody who had stage 2B through stage 4. 
uh, because all that, it works for Pembro. So why, again, exclude certain patients? If we think this is really going to work, we should try it in everybody. And then um, the finanlimab plus simiplimab, LAG3 plus PD-1 combo is also being evaluated in an adjuvant clinical, or will be soon evaluated in an adjuvant clinical trial. And they're also including stage 2C, you can see here, uh, in that clinical trial. So another case that we'll go over to explore the use of immunotherapy now, talking about stage 2. Uh, so this time, my patient, Barbara, is a 42-year-old woman, uh, and she's recently diagnosed with a stage 2C melanoma in the mid-back. And surgery is recommended, which um, that, that's a good idea. Um, I'll note that, um, you know, usually it's old guy. you know, it's usually guys, actually, that show up with these huge lesions on their back, right? And like, and somehow, I don't understand, they're often married, too, and which always makes me wonder a little bit about, like, what's going on there, that, like, this thing is on the back. But anyway, so, um, but, you know, you, surgery is recommended. They do BRAF testing. It's BRAF wild type. Okay, so it gets taken off appropriately, right? And it turns out there is no nodal disease. And, I, you know, when we see these really bad lesions, we're always like, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. But it happens. Every once in a while, they do the node, it's, and there's nothing. And you're like, wow, it's, a, you know, well, but you have to think back then, those melanoma-specific survival curves say these patients are super high risk. And it's probably not a perfect number in AJCC because the continuum of stage 2C is very broad. You can have a 4.1 millimeter depth melanoma, but you can also have an 8 millimeter depth melanoma. They're all called the same thing, right? And so there's more nuance that would need to go into this. But given the issues of overtreatment, of toxicity versus benefit, this is still an area of some controversy. You can imagine my perspective, having heard what I just said, but I'm interested to get feedback here. Do you guys offer anti-PD-1 for all patients with stage 2B and 2C? Or how do you counsel people? Are there factors that you take into account in any of this? How do you think through this, maybe? And, and Dr. Kendra, you want to go first? And, you know, how do you think about this question? If they have no contraindications to immunotherapy, I would treat. I think the risk is higher. I think the concern is there. I mean, I'll say, you know, I think adjuvant therapy, sometimes these are the longer conversations that you have with the patient in clinic, right? Patient with metastatic disease, you know, especially with some of the data that we have with DreamSeq, you're, you know you're starting with immune therapy. That patient obviously knows they need treatment. Um, and so in the adjuvant setting, that's where you're really trying to discuss, okay, here's the benefit, here's a potential risk. Um, you know, you're 42, so you, you may develop hypothyroidism, may need thyroid supplement the rest of your life. Um, so, so these are certainly the longer conversations that I have, um, trying to weigh with that patient those the pros, cons, and, you know, where after that conversation, okay, so now, now how do, what do you feel about that? Yeah. And I think it's, it's a weird thing in adjuvant, and I, I, I say this to patients, obviously, like, cracks their brain. You'll never know if the adjuvant therapy worked. You'll only know if it doesn't work. And if you get a side effect from it, will you feel confident it was worth it? That's a really hard thing to think about, right? Most people go to the doctor and say, doc, tell me what to do. And then we say, well, there are these percentages, and you might get this terrible thing, but it might be great, but you won't really know if you need it in the first place. It's hard, right? Uh, I think this goes to the bottom question, which is what is the role of wider oncology management? I think this is where multidisciplinary management of melanoma is really, really important. Because one of the things that can happen for patients is they get told by the surgeon, your node was negative, therefore you're cured. But you're not, right? Potentially not. 
for the things we said. And so this is where multidisciplinary teams are much better about this nuance. Because if a patient is told after the surgery that they're fine, when they come to see a medoc and we're like, yeah, we're giving you this treatment, it's got a 5% chance of giving you like some terrible you know, endocrinopathy, but it might cure the melanoma, right? They're like, what are you talking about? The other guy told me I was cured, right? So I think it really emphasizes getting patients into a group that can discuss all aspects of the risk and benefit uh, that go along with adjuvant therapy because it's not so straightforward. And I think it's very reasonable that some patients might say, I understand the potential benefit, but I'm very leery of toxicity, and I would prefer just to be observed. And that's okay, as long as they understand what it is that the pros and cons are in terms of that trade-off. We're going to move on to the final talk here from Dr. Kendra. Hi, I'm Carrie Kendra, medical oncologist, um, and I'm in charge of the cutaneous oncology program at Ohio State University. Um, when it comes to um, neoadjuvant therapy, there are several potential benefits um, to neoadjuvant therapy. The use of neoadjuvant therapy allows us to identify an individual's response to the therapy, whether it be a clinical response or a pathological response. The, another potential benefit is that it can improve the surgical resectability of a tumor, decrease morbidity associated with that resection, and with that potentially improve the quality of life for that given individual long term. And ultimately, if, if the neoadjuvant therapy works, it can offer an improved relapse-free survival and overall survival. Biologically, uh, when we look at um, the be potential benefits of neoadjuvant therapy, if the immunotherapy is given while the tumor is in place, there is a potential for activation and expansion of a broader range of T cells, such that when that tumor is removed, those activated um, T cells can then work systemically to help clear th that um, potentially micrometastatic disease that exists. Um, first question is, is, if we have a response, a complete response, what does that mean? Does it really tell us that the therapy is working well enough for us to go forward with that? Um, this was a study that was um, performed. Uh, patients were treated with either a single um, anti-PD-1 or a combination of the anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4. While the pathological response rates were different for the different agents as expected, um, the, the pathological complete response rates was reflective of, of recurrence-free survival. So, so we have some evidence that does show that um, neoadjuvant immunotherapy can improve um, superior relapse-free survival as using the, the pathological complete response rate as a surrogate. There was a study um, that was presented at ESMO, um, SWOGS S1801. And in this study, um, they were looking at what would happen if we add neoadjuvant therapy on top of the adjuvant pembrolizumab for patients with melanoma. The patients enrolled on this study were stage 3B to oligorrhea metastatic resectable stage four. These patients could have either cutaneous, acral, or mucosal melanoma, um, but they could not have brain metastasis. Patients were randomized to receive um, surgery, followed by 18 cycles of Pembro, which was standard, or to receive three cycles of Pembro, followed by surgery, and then complete the Pembro um, of, with those 15 cycles. I mean, this study had a median follow-up of 14.7 months. The neoadjuvant-adjuvant group had a significantly longer event-free survival than the adjuvant-only group. The event-free survival of two years was 72% in the neoadjuvant-adjuvant group and 49% in the adjuvant-only group, again, showing the benefit of neoadjuvant therapy followed by adjuvant therapy. 
The benefits were present across all subgroups, including those at higher risk, those with a higher LDH, and, and with the, the stage four um, deeper tumors. The use of the neoadjuvant um, pembrolizumab was safe. Um, toxic, there's a similar rate of high-grade AEs in either group, and there were no new toxic effects of pembrolizumab in either trial group. In the neoadjuvant-adjuvant group, disease progression or toxic effects resulting in the inability to undergo surgery occurred in less than 10% of the patients. So, so with this study, um, using um, neoadjuvant pembrolizumab for three cycles, um, followed by surgery, followed by adjuvant therapy, looks to be beneficial in terms of event-free survival and a low toxicity. Another um, trial was looking at um, combination therapy. In the OPASA-NEO trial, uh, patients were randomized to either receive the standard um, ipinevo do dosing or to the reverse dosing or um, to administer the drug sequentially. They then, then underwent surgery. Um, the pathological responses seen were greatest when the combination therapies were used, but with the inverse dosing, we saw far fewer of the grade three, four toxicities um, than we did um, with the standard. So the flip dosing appears to maximize efficacy and limit toxicity of neoadjuvant therapy using the, the IPI at a one mg per kilogram dose and the NEVO at a three mg per kilogram dose with significant pathological responses. Relapse-free survival after two years of follow-ups um, did show um, the, the curves as noted here um, with arm A um, being uh, more significant um, than arm B. Um, but um, after medium, medium follow-up of 46.8 months, uh, medium realized free survival and overall survival were not reached. The Prado study was looking at whether or not lymph node dissection can be omitted for certain patients after neoadjuvant ipinevo. Um, in this study, um, patients um, would receive two courses of ipinevo. The, there would be resection of the most marked lymph node if a pathological complete response or a near pathological complete response were noted as defined by less than 10% viable tumor cells, then that patient did not have a further nodal dissection and had received no further therapy, just follow-up. If those individuals were found to have a pathological partial response, meaning 10 to 50% viable tumor cells, they, under, they did undergo a lymph node dissection and then were followed with observation. If those patients had, less, had greater than 50% viable tumor cells, thus no, path, uh, no, no pathological response, they did undergo completion lymph node dissection and subsequently received a nivolumab um, therapy as adjuvant therapy. Um, in this study, um, the Prado study confirmed the safety and the high pathological response rate of the neoadjuvant therapy, um, as seen in the OPASA-NEO trial. Omission of the, the lymph node dissection and omission of adjuvant therapy in patients with a major pathological spot response was associated with a better quality of life and resulted in a higher two-year relapse-free survival. Patients with pathological partial response seem to have higher relapse rates than previously suggested and may potentially benefit from additional adjuvant therapy. 
and addition of adjuvant therapy, plus or minus radiation in patients who did not demonstrate any pathological response did seem to improve two-year relapse-free survival compared with historical data. So thus, the response seen um, in the initial neoadjuvant setting can be used to drive subsequent surgery and subsequent adjuvant therapy options. Another neoadjuvant trial was the anti-PD-1 LAG-3, the next step in combination therapy. Um, this was for patients with stage 3V, C, or D, or the oligometastatic stage 4 melanoma, had no prior immunotherapy. They received the, the Rella and the Nevo um, every four weeks for two doses, and then underwent surgical resection. And then they continued on with the adjuvant therapy um, with assessment of uh, clinical radiographic follow-up. I mean, the study, those who obtained a path response um, had a higher probability of relapse-free survival than those who did not demonstrate any path response, again, confirming the value of the path response and noting the high pathological um, complete response rates um, that we saw in the study. S1512 was a neoadjuvant um, anti-PD-1 study for patients with desmoplastic melanoma. Desmoplastic melanoma is an amelanotic melanoma found in high sun-exposed areas, and with that has a high tumor mutational burden. When people undergo um, surgery for desmoplastic melanoma, they frequently have, require multiple surgeries, deep surgeries, and are left with these huge deficits in the head and neck, highly visible areas. So the purpose of this study was to see whether if we gave the patients three cycles of neoadjuvant pembro, whether we could um, have a strong enough uh, pathological complete response where we could potentially eliminate the need for these huge surgical resections in these patients. And patients um, were eligible if they had resectable disease based on a surgeon's definition and that they had residual disease post-biopsy. That residual disease can be firmed either radiographically, clinically on exam, and validated or validated with an F and A to confirm. Patients receive pembrolizumab every three weeks for three cycles. If they have resectable if their disease remained resectable, they could undergo surgical resection. If not, they were allowed to receive one more treatment and then um, proceed with surgical resection. In this study, we found a pathological complete response rate of 55%. Um, a pathological and complete response was defined as no viable cancer cells. And with that, 55% of these patients had a dramatic enough response that there is a potential there for, for us to minimize the use of surgical resection in this patient population. This is an example of the type of response that was seen, but this was a lesion on the forehead, and this was a response after three cycles of the neoadjuvant pembrolizumab, um, complete evidence of clinical response. With resection, this person patient would have had a large deficit, a big flap, and a huge scar on his scalp. Beautiful response. Um, when we look at clinical responses, as in many of the neoadjuvant trials, clinical responses far beh fall behind pathological responses. Um, the clinical responses noted here, we did see a complete clinical response of 15%, 31% uh, partial response for an overall response rate of 46%. Thus, um, neoadjuvant um, therapy with three cycles of pembrolizumab in patients with desmoplastic melanoma um, can have significant benefit for that patient. Um, this study is looking at the PD-1 TIGIT inhibitors um, in the neoadjuvant setting. It's a key maker, uh, 
U02, the substudy um, 2C. And in this study, patients were randomized to either receive Pembro alone, Pembro with a TIGIT, anti-TIGIT, or a Pembro with a, the intratumoral oncolytic virus. Um, patients um, then underwent surgery and then received adjuvant therapy with pembrolizumab. Um, what was seen here was a dramatic um, pathological response of 81% in the patients that received the anti-PD-1 and the anti-TIGIT. So there was a 73% pembro alone and an 81% pathological response uh, with the combination. Toxicities um, were, were very consistent with what is seen otherwise. Um, we did see slightly more um, in this arm right here um, with some of the, the anti-TIGIT. In summary, uh, data supports the use of um, pathological response as a surrogate for relapse-free survival. Neoadjuvant adjuvant pembro has an improved um, event-free survival compared to adjuvant pembro alone. Um, flip dosing, ipinevo, appears to maximize the efficacy and limit toxicity of the neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Desmoplastic melanoma, a unique subtype, uh, demonstrated pathological complete response rate of uh, 55%. In the PRADA trial, the omission of lymph node dissection and omission of adjuvant therapy in patients with a major pathological assault, uh, response is associated with better quality of life and resulted in a high two-year relapse-free survival. Patients with a pathological partial response because their higher relapse may need more therapy. Neoadjuvant Rela Nevo demonstrated a high pathological complete response with the combination therapy. And Pembro plus the anti-TIGIT appears to be active in the neoadjuvant setting. There's a growing body of phase two and phase three evidence supporting the use of neoadjuvant immunotherapy in melanoma. From the current NCCN guidelines, consideration of neoadjuvant therapy, preferably in a clinical trial, for no, is, 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 um, should be considered for node-positive melanoma. Um, we now have a case. We have Alice. She's a 69-year-old woman. She was diagnosed with melanoma of her left cheek and underwent resection in 2015. On observation in 2021, she presented with a lump on her left face and weakness in the corner of her mouth. An FNA of that, that fullness um, what she was, was performed, and she was found to have a lymph node that was positive for melanoma. CT of the neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis was obtained, and a mass was found in the left parotid tail, tra tail measuring 2.5 by 2.7 centimeters. There was some indeterminate left level two lymph nodes and several small adjacent level two to three lymph nodes. The, on clinical exam, the mass was palpable. There were no other significant clinical findings and no other significant medical history. Genomic testing was performed. Her tumor had an NF1 testing. Her BRAF mutation was the G369. So the question is, what options are next? Do we consider neoadjuvant treatment? Do we consider surgery, then adjuvant treatment? Um, and what is the role of the wider management team? So I turn to our team here for some discussions. Great. Well, I, I mean, I think the last question is probably the most important, um, is that wider team management. You know, I think any of these patients that come in with, you know, locally advanced disease, it's, it's like critical to make sure that you've got, um, you know, the medical oncologist speaking with your surgeon, the input from the radiation oncologist, the um, dermatologist, um, you know, because it certainly sounds to me like this patient should be um, at least considered um, for neoadjuvant therapy. I know one of the things that 
um, kind of gets forgotten is those neoadjuvant um, trials. It was all resectable disease up front, right? Those studies weren't designed to um, um, take a patient and make them resectable. Um, so that's still something um, to consider implementing um, that um, those those trial that trial data into practice. Um, so I think certainly you know this sounds like it would be a pretty morbid um, procedure. So I think it's certainly worth considering with your team. Hey, is this a patient that might be a trial candidate? I'm looking at the Swagate you know one data. Um, what could we do to help this patient? Yep. And uh, so I agree with all of that. And uh, I'd point out one thing I think we didn't dwell on, but it would be a, a little nugget in case you have to take the boards or something. That NF1 mutation really gives something away here. So NF1 mutations are disproportionately present in desmoplastic melanomas and are associated with extremely high levels of tumor mutational burden. And this, she didn't have time to go into it, but Dr. Dr. Kendra led a trial looking at that exact indication and it's just like astronomical CR rates. So, um, you know, I think there's actually a little bit of a, a little bit of a tweak here about you know, what's the role of the wider team? There might actually not be a role for surgery in this patient because the likelihood of complete pathologic response is so high. This patient might actually not end up going to surgery if they get anti-PD-1. But to this point, let's not presume that. Let's get everything queued up and ready. But this patient has a very high potential to do extremely well with neoadjuvant anti-PD-1, but albeit should be done in the context of you know, risk management, right? You know, plan for the worst, hope for the best kind of situation, right? But I, I think that's another little nugget there that you can be aware of. Um, if you see an NF1 mutation, it probably means desmoplastic. That means a very high chance of response to checkpoint blockade. So this patient, um, we had not had our desmoplastic data out yet. So, so she was treated at 1801, and she had a complete pathological response with her neoadjuvant therapy. We have seven minutes left before the end of the program. And I think uh, from here, we're, we're really interested to get any Q&A that you might have. And I think, um, I don't know if there are microphones around, but um, you can yell and we can repeat the question. Uh, to get started, I think one question that's on here that I think looks very interesting actually is, someone is at, it was mentioned the Prado trial of, I, I think what they meant by that was identifying the node and dictating treatment based on that. And there's a question of, have any of you actually done that in clinical practice? And so... Uh, I haven't yet, uh -huh. no. Uh, we tend not to do a lot of nodal dissections based on MSLT2 data. Uh -huh. um, so, so we tend to follow more with ultrasounds. Okay, well that's really interesting actually. So we have a lot of neoadjuvant trials as well, although we have not taken it upon ourselves to go that far yet as well. I think um, our surgeons still are not, not convinced that that's in a way to go. I, I'd say that I, I think the data look quite promising, but I think that's probably in the standard of care setting, we probably don't want to be not pursuing curative intent procedures until we have really definitive evidence that that's an okay thing to do. Uh, questions from the audience? We have a mic. I used to have longer hair. No questions about that? No? no. Anything? No? So the biggest challenge I run into is treating patients after they've developed toxicity from ipinevo. So they have pneumonitis or colitis that required steroid therapy for protracted time. They're not candidates for trials, et cetera. What are you guys doing for those folks? Well, I can get started. So um, I, in the phase one unit, that's, that's a, it seems like that's a predominance of the patients that we see. Like, hey, this patient had bad IOTOX to ipinevo. 
what else do we have? Um, I, and the way I look at it is two things. So one, make sure you've done full profiling, because even if they're BRAF uh, negative, there may be some other target that might still be available to that patient on a clinical trial, or you know, potentially even something off-label um, if you know the kit mutation or, or um, something else. But certainly, there's more studies now for NRAS for atypical BRAF mutations. Um, the, the other thing is sometimes, you know, a common scenario is a patient that may be tolerated anti-PD-1 adjuvant fine and then got ipinevo, you know, recurrence and just had, you know, terrible colitis. Sometimes those are patients that um, if they've had a, a break off of therapy, you could actually try PD-1 monotherapy again um, to see how they tolerate it. Um, a, to see, you know, sometimes I've had patients that have had a great response and then B, that opens up trial op options for them again, because I think that toxicity we see with um, ipilimumab is just as novel um, to itself. So those would be some considerations I would think through. We would look to the phase one trials as well. The comment I'd make about it is that, um, you know, if you don't have trials, like what do you do with the patient? Um, you know, we, there are retrospective series to try to look at what's the incidence of reinducing a really high-grade event after re-exposure to checkpoint blocking. It's not as high as you would think. So with um, patients who got IPI, rechallenging only led to a toxicity of significance again in a third of cases. So what that tells me is that it's, it's all about informed consent, right? If you have the patient in front of you who's progressing, they might have something bad happen to them again if you give them checkpoint blockade again, but you know something will be bad if you don't do anything, right? And so that's where I talk to them about what do you want to do, right? I have a patient right now who had, um, we gave him ipinevo, and he got brain mets, and he got, but got, also got terrible colitis. And so we got him through that. It turns out he's BRAF mutation, so we're putting him on that. But what are we going to do when he eventually progresses on BRAF? We know he's going to. I've already started talking about, would you want to do lenvatinib and Pembro, or just lenvatinib in that scenario? Because you know, he's not going to be, he's got brain meds and, you know, tox. And, you know, I, he'd probably go for the combo because he wants the biggest upside he can get. And if it turns out, something bad happens again, then he's educated, you know? So I think it's that kind of like level setting with patients, you know? Um, all of you know better than I do, but regular clinical practice is not clinical trials. You know, you work with what you got and you educate the patient, you make the best decision you can, and sometimes that works out well, and sometimes it doesn't work out as well as you would have. And brain mets are slightly different than when someone doesn't have brain mets, right? There are different categories. You know, the brain mets, we do try to be more aggressive with combination therapies of different types. When they're not in the brain, we look outside. So can they get a, you know, a TVAC injection or, or some type of interlesional therapy um, to, to tackle it as well? Are there, can they tolerate single-agent Nevo and just bypass the IPI if it's not in the brain, right? So looking at other ways to sort of modify, do we combine the Nevo with, with some type of radiation to get that upscopal effect if we think that they can tolerate the Nevo, but it's not great enough to give us a response for where their disease is sitting? There's some good questions um, here also. Oh, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Uh, when you show the prior results, you mentioned that the subgroup of patients with partial response had a higher relapse rate than we are expecting compared to the previous data. Why is the, the, what do you think is the explanation for this difference for this subgroup of patients? So, so those here who, who had that partial response partial pathological response. They did have an oral dissection, but they received no adjuvant therapy. So this is the group that may benefit from that adjuvant therapy more. And I, I'd emphasize on that. Um, we feel very confident about what happens to patients who have complete partial 
complete pathologic responses. What happens to anybody who doesn't have a complete pathologic response or near pathologic response remains like a gigantic wide open question. We don't really know what to do with them. And so should you switch from PD-1 to BREF if you can? Should you escalate to ipinevo somehow? Like we, we, nobody knows the answer to any of these questions. So you hear a lot about neoadjuvant. Everybody's like really excited about it because we really like it when it works. Uh, when it doesn't work quite so good, we're actually not sure what the answer is yet. Um, but you know, more to come. And I think as the standard of care transitions, we'll get a lot more evidence over time. So I think that was a, a great uh, review, and I hope that uh, all of you found that to be um, useful. Um, with that, again, thank you very much for your time tonight. I hope it was useful, and um, appreciate you coming out. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GUW860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Merck & Company Incorporated and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.